0: Hello everybody, welcome back to the BSF study on the Minor Prophets. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region, and today we're looking at the Book of Hosea. The prophet Hosea is very unique among the prophets for having to marry a woman prone to adultery. Their relationship would become a living witness, a heartbreaking drama to the people of Israel of their abandonment of God's love. So God gives Hosea a special task that will break his own heart. And that through this life of heartbreak, he's able to peer into the wisdom of God in ways few other prophets, except perhaps maybe Abraham or David had the privilege to experience and see. And with that, we always see that God reveals great glory and great understanding into the depths of God's own heart. Have you noticed how... um, rich in imagery and how expressive in language Hosea is in comparison to the other prophetic books that we've we've read so far. Something profound happens when we share in and understand the heartbreak that God has for us. Uh, he's the unrequited lover, the jilted and faithful husband, the sacrificial and forgiving God who says, you may have prostituted yourself with other men, but I will not do the same to you. I will not do as you have done, nor abandon my covenant with you. God as a faithful husband comes up throughout the scriptures. It's a recurring motif. It is the first metaphor God creates in Adam and Eve in their union to symbolize his relationship with us. Christians know how how primal this divine symbolism is, so that in you know in the very marriage ceremony that we often take for granted these days, especially these days, believers reenact God's love for the church through the ceremony union of man and woman. The man does not walk down the aisle; the woman does, uh, symbolizing the bride of Christ. The bride richly adorned, the church walking toward her bridegroom with her eyes transfixed on him. And then, you know, she doesn't walk down that aisle by herself. Her father guides her down that aisle, holding her arm and in careful, joy-filled steps, methodically, step by step, symbolizing that procession that the Holy Spirit takes in bringing us into that sanctifying and preparing work toward our bridegroom. And we as the Church of Christ being led singularly down that aisle toward that great joy of meeting our Lord and Savior. And then she wears a dress of white, the white robe, which symbolizes the robe of righteousness that adorns us that Christ buys for us, our husband. And then the veil of seeing that only Jesus can lift, which allows the church to see all of history and our work being done by him in full comprehension. And then, of course, you have the bridesmaid and the groomsmen. What do they symbolize? Well, uh, they are the angels of heaven who worked ardently for God in the ministry of the church and then the whole audience seated throughout the congregation you know the audience of the church represent the heavenly host the spiritual creatures all of who look on the drama of god's love revealed to us and revealed to all creation god's attributes foremost his great love shining brilliantly into the witness of all creation that is why you know satan loves to attack marriage it's a way in which he's able to deface yet another of god's wonderful testimony of his great and profound love for us to all the world to all the universe this divine imagery in marriage ceremony is getting lost today as everyone is trying to make it that special day about themselves or the dress or the fancy location or the budget or impressing one's family and friends and as as to be expected when that happens you know god always gets lost in the mix when we lose the plot and don't make efforts to preserve his timeless message that provide that pervades over everything else that we do. You know, Hosea 219 says, Israel, I will make you my wife. I will be true and faithful. I will show you constant love and mercy and make you mine forever. That is being uh, repeated in Isaiah 54, 5, where it says, for your maker is your husband The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. So yeah, the theme of husband is is very important in Scripture and one that we need to teach more more faithfully and and more regularly to uh, believers in our discipleship and in our spiritual formation. Uh, I I want to go on to a third uh, reference uh, in John's Gospel that we might not necessarily link to this theme of husband, but it's there. And that's in John's Gospel where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman who has several husbands. It's a very well-known story. So she comes to the well at the heat of the afternoon, possibly to avoid the other townswomen who come early to avoid the heat of the day, the sun, at the sixth hour, it says. And perhaps she wants to avoid the dirty looks and the gossip mongers of those who knew that she had many men in her life. And Jesus knew the parchness, the dryness of her soul. So he sends away the disciples and uh, to get food while he waits for her. Using the water in the well as an analogy of her spiritual need, he draws her into a spiritual conversation about God's supply of unquenchable water. When she says, give me this water so I won't have to be thirsty again, Jesus goes to the heart of her heart's problem. Bring your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And, and you have to realize, you know, she, she's very tight right now. Her heart and her spirit is very tight and closed. But she is intrigued by what Jesus is saying about water that will spring forth into everlasting life. And Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. You have no husband, although you have had a line of them, is what basically Jesus is saying. And, and that touches a nerve. You know, that day, Jesus went out of his way to find this woman, uh, just as much as he finds each of us. The scripture says that he had to go through Samaria. Samaria. You know, and Samaria at the time, uh, as we even learned, uh, in this people of the promise study, it's a religiously corrupted and defiled area that the um, Jews at that time avoided. So on their way to Galilee, they went uh, across the Jordan and went a roundabout way, which took an extra day. But they did that all the more because they wanted to avoid this corrupted land, because um, I, but Jesus did not do that. He was looking for her. She had been looking for husbands to fill the void and need of her life and much the way in which we do today with stuff to complete her dreams, to her identity. You know, she's looking for a husband to provide her security, make her respectable, make her happy, as many of us do today. But like so many Hollywood divorcees, no man could fill that empty, emptiness. And I'm sure um, people have tried. Then here comes Jesus you know in the scriptures 7 is a special number in the bible connoting fulfillment peace completion god's kingdom god's rest and i'm not saying that she had to have six other husbands to get to jesus no but i'm i am saying that in her particular wayward wandering it took having to go through the misery of six very human very flawed selfish self-serving imperfect husbands before she threw up her hands and perhaps thought, I give up, this isn't working. Lord God, this isn't working out as I'd hope." You know, we all go through a period of time when God purges us of our stubborn and fixed way of thinking by letting us go through the heartbreak of errors to get to the other side of a deep realization, of a deep repentance, right? We all know that when we get there, though, if we've had any sense at all that we're convinced that our method and our ways have not worked, that what we were idolizing in other people and the things of this world was just plain stupid, now she has met the seventh husband in the Messiah. The seventh husband who was the only one who can complete her because he made her. He was the only one who could give her perfect shalom, perfect peace, fills her heart with joy. The true husband the messiah who would teach her how to worship god in spirit and in truth and find her eternal destiny in him so whether you are a man or a woman this applies to all of us this truth applies to everyone we all have a desire for a true husband a god the true husband of our souls some fill that void with material things i've said before and even sex and drugs and pleasures and other people but You know these things will always leave us in more despair tired exhausted and parched in our spirits than before so hosea appreciated the pain that god felt over his people's apostasy as no other prophet did because he felt the intense pain of his wife's unfaithfulness to him Hosea could speak of the deepest things. You know, Hosea began ministering near the end of an era of great material prosperity and military success for both Israel and Judah. And that's uh, found in 2 Kings chapter 14, 25 to 28 and 2 Chronicles 26, 2 and 16 through 15. In the first half of the 8th century BC, Assyrian influence in the west had declined temporarily, allowing uh, both Nineveh to repent, but also Jeroboam II and Uzziah to flourish and conquer more lands. However, under Teklath-Peleazar III, which is around 745-727 to BC, Assyria began to grow stronger and to expand westward again. So that by, in, by the time 734 BC came around, the northern kingdom became a puppet nation within that growing, aspirational Assyrian empire. And that's found in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29. After Israel tried to revolt, Assyria defeated Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. In 722 BC, and deported the people of Israel into captivity, and that's found in Second Kings chapter 17, and then also in 18 as well. Judah also became a vassal state for the Assyrian Empire during during Hosea's ministry, and that's uh, described in Second Kings chapter 16, verse 5 to 10. So Hosea's prophecy reflects conditions of. Economic prosperity, religious formalism, uh, uh, so kind of fakeism, you might say, and apostasy. There's a lot of religiousness, but not enough sincerity to the true God. And there's a departure from previously held beliefs and commitments to God. Uh, there's an effort to maintain political stability, uh, conditions that marked uh, the compromise and the uh, alliances that Jeroboam II uh, made in his reign. The historical background of the book of Amos is almost identical to. Regarding sin, the prophet stressed the idolatry of the Israelites, which he compared to spiritual adultery. Israel had turned from uh, God to worship a Baal, the prosperity God, the Canaanite God of fertility that was widespread in that region. And the Lord told Hosea, to marry a woman who would prove to be unfaithful to him, so that he could, uh, so he could appreciate and communicate how the Lord felt about his wife, about Israel's unfaithfulness to him, God's people deserting him. Hosea also pointed out other sins that the Israelites needed to forsake: violent crimes. That's chapter four, verse two, and chapter six nine. Political revolt, foreign alliances. Chapter 7, seven eleven eight chapter 8 to 9, and then also spiritual ingratitude, chapter 7, verse 15, social injustice, chapter 12, verse 7, and selfish arrogance, chapter 13, 6, and many others, of course. He goes into detail about this, very florid with the descriptions of their shortcomings and their failings, their outright refusal to uh, live by the design and the ways of God as he has prescribed it for them. So what causes a wayward heart? What Hosea seems to be teaching us here in his uh, book is that the very lives that we insist on living into preconditions us, predisposes us to worship a certain kind of God because it's only that kind of God that fits in, meshes well, and is aligned with the kind of lifestyle and the kind of direction and orientation of our lifestyle. And so we become what we worship and we worship what we've become. I hope that you can kind of sit and park on that for a moment, that we worship what we've become and then we become what we worship. We become the very things that we love. We become the very things that our affections are directed toward. The key words for us to look into more deeply as we further uh, kind of delve into the, the details of Hosea and because there is just so much material and many, many different metaphors and symbolisms to compare ourselves and our, our dereliction of our love for the Lord, um, it's it's important to at least come away from our study with a few things for our minds to meditate on throughout the week, because they're very important as we kind of unpack and delve deeper into the ramifications of these kind of a. Uh, Motifs and metaphors. The first being the true husband, right, which I touched on about uh, as I described the Christian marriage. The true husband versus the false husband. The importance of marriage and the image of the betrayed lover. There is the adulterous wife. Uh, that's an obvious one that we'll talk about more soon. There's the children or the uh, offspring of unfaithfulness and the names that they receive that we'll talk about soon selling oneself to the nation is kind of a prostitution of oneself the polluting of ourselves and the way in which we uh, live into and fully become sold into the ways of paganism and pagan uh, ways of valuing and cherishing uh, things that are out of place with what god calls us to and the i am the lord your god who brought you out of egypt that constant refer uh, reference back to the escape out of Egypt, the goodness of God, the ways in which the bring out of Egypt is symbolism of bring us out of the domain of Satan and sin, the captivity, the spiritual bondage that we were under. Then there is the interesting reference to Jezreel, which in Hebrew means God plants, and Jezreel is a proxy word or a substitution for uh, the Garden of Eden, and as you. Anytime the scripture talks about the Garden of Eden, it's uh, taking us back to the place in which our relationship with God was in unity, was in harmony, was in uh, peace. It's a place where, um, as opposed to the destruction that we saw in Jezreel with Naboth earlier in our studies, it is a place where God seeks to see restoration and redemption, a garden where fruit, fruit is born abundantly in the vineyards. So that's an important contrast, what Jezreel becomes, and it hinges on our relationship with God, a place of destruction and desolation versus a garden, again, reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, where we have perfect union uh, and uh, relationship with God face to face. Next is stopping for her celebrations, the ruined vines and fig trees and the empty sowing into the wind sowing i'm sorry is misspelled as s-o-w-i-n-g it's about how apart from god any attempts to flourish and to make things grow make things prosper uh, is work that's kind of uh, empty. It, it doesn't give any good results. Uh, we, we can't celebrate uh, without feeling tired afterwards and depleted by it because there is these things without God becomes empty, uh, unproductive um, activities. And then there is mention of the calf idol worship in Dan and Bethel. As you remember in 1 Kings chapter 12, the uh, priests in the northern kingdom set up uh, golden calf idols in those nations as a place in, in Bethel and also in Dan where people can go to worship God. And it was a perversion of what was the true way of worshiping God. They so set up totems in, in, or the uh, Asherah poles in the high places. And then, you know, whenever uh, people are removed from the ways in which God has specifically taught them how to worship, they make arrangements Of worship or manufacture their own style and way of worshiping in line with what they want to do and that's what we had talked about earlier Uh, we becoming the very thing we worship what we become we become what we worship right and so and then the last word there is Ephraim now at this time of Hosea's writing Samaria and the word Samaria was becoming such a a botched word, a word that didn't signify a very good thing. And so the uh, Hosea is now using Ephraim as a way as to talk about the nation that was supposed to rightly worship God. And uh, Ephraim was centrally located, as you can see on this map. It was also the place where Bethel, the primary place of worship that the people in Samaria went to, uh, and where the prophets often spoke out of, people like Elisha uh, went through Bethel, and uh, Elijah crossed through Bethel on their way to being uh, on his way to being taken by God. So Hosea describes a God who searches for us; He buys us back from the selling of ourselves to hard and cruel masters, as described in chapter three, where it talks about how Hosea is buying back his his wife. Uh, and, and tries to restore her, John speaks of Christ who is waiting for us. He goes out of the way for us. He waits for us, leads us to search our hearts, to think our lives over and realize the important realities we have long denied with the truth. And then he leads us into worship, into celebration, worship being a celebration in the relationship we have with God and rightly understanding the truth. So the doctrine that we want to look at throughout the study is one of redemption, and, and that's an important theme to delve deeper and unpack what redemption means, and how through that process of redemption, we come to understand God's unfailing love, and the big idea communicated here is God's redemption of, of the wayward, totally undeserving, totally unfaithful, and the principles that we see is that God seeks and saves wayward people. He loves to do that. God remains faithful when people are unfaithful. And God calls his children to love and serve him wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. It's not where you can do a part-time or divide up your hearts and ha- enter into a relationship with a divided heart. The divisions that we look at, is that first Hosea marries and brought back his unfaithful wife at God's command, chapters 1 to 3, and then Hosea prophesied regarding Israel's unfaithfulness to God despite his steadfast love, chapters 4 to 14. The subject sentence is that Hosea's adulterous wife illustrated Israel's waywardness amidst God's faithfulness. And there are two aims to look at, one being that God adamantly it shows and teaches us that God adamantly seeks after his wayward people. And then also God shows love to people who do not deserve it. Some further breakdown, a kind of ways to parse out what we're looking at here is that God is showing his love in a, as a crazy love in, in what other people might say. Why do you even try? Give up on it. And so, first of all, he shows that um, we are prone to wander and to adulterate ourselves away from God, away from God's grace, away from God's ways, and away from God's love. And that's covered in the first three chapters. And again, the principle here to look at is that God adamantly and faithfully reaches out to us because He loves us. And then the main truth... uh, here in the second portion is that god lovingly pursues and redeems the wayward Uh, it's all about the redeeming of the unfaithful heart the heart that is prone to forget in chapter 4 the heart that rejects knowledge chapter 4 to 5 the heart that rejects mercy in chapter 6 to 13 and then it closes with a message of hope Uh, return to me in chapter 14 and the principle here is that God longs to heal our wandering heart or in other words that we looked at before that God redeems and that means that God's redeeming love pursues and transforms his beloved through that relationship you know any relationship changes a person any good relationship changes a person for the better and that's what God's relationship does completely changes us for the better So, uh, here's a question. Why does the husband in the story keep after the wayward wife? So, what we shouldn't look past in this book is the repeated refrain and truth that life gets much, much worse without God. We were created for God, and without Him, we quickly lose ourselves, deforming, corrupting, becoming increasingly more polluted, So beyond recognition of the thing, that the beautiful creation that God has created us to be, becoming as vile as the thing we have loved, that's chapter 9, verse 10. But with God, we not only regain a vibrant, rich life, imitating more and more who He is, but life as we were meant to live. And we gain life in preparation for the kingdom to come, past this mortal life, We are not a mistake or random processes. We are the prized possession of a loving God who is constantly wooing us. I was reminded of this recently, Uh, I saw a trailer of an old old movie I had watched, uh, and I don't recommend this movie at all because it's not a very good one, Uh, but it was an 80s movie called Twins. Uh, It's not a very good movie again, so don't watch it, but it's about two brothers born out of a wacky scientific experiment to make the perfect human being. Well, of course, in the science of humans, perfect means being attractive and brawny and smart. And inevitably, something always goes wrong in such stories, as was the case in this movie. The two brothers are born uh, with one being more perfect appearing than the other, the second who is short and temperamental and predisposed to crime. Well, they grow up somehow in orphanages and then they find each other and they lament that they don't have parents. They don't have anyone to look out after them. They both grow up having very deep needs and they're searching for answers. They're, they're out searching for their mother or their parents. And they find the scientist who concocted their birth and he tells them they were mistakes. Their biological parents abandoned them and they're alone in the world. And then the scientist goes on to tell the survivalist weaker brother that all the good parts went to his older brother, but all the bad parts went to him. He says that he's a freak accident of their experiment, an unintended side effect. He's an error, a mistake. I spoke about this in the past, but what happens to a person who discovers or is told that he or she is a mistake or trash? or that they're all alone in the universe and that nobody's looking for them, Hosea repeatedly says, we fail to acknowledge the Lord. And when we do this, the spirit of prostitution is in our hearts with arrogance and with love of sin. That's chapter 5 and onward throughout the rest of the, the book of Hosea. This is the very lie that Satan tries to tell all of us and it contributes to a great deal of the aspersions on our divine humanity, the degradation and the violence that we commit on those others we think are not as good as we are, someone of a different background or color or ethnicity, economic standing in the world, and educational background. Our sinful hearts love to put others down, to criticize and cast others into an inferior light those who God had imbued with his divine image from the very beginning. So whether it's Adam displacing blame onto his wife and God, or Cain killing his brother, or Ham mocking his father Noah's moment of indiscretion as he lay in naked stupor, uh, all of these dehumanize. It brings down that divine humanity uh, that God has given us, desacralizing the image of God given to all of us. So when you reflect on the golden rule and the 10 commandments, the first five commandments being about, or the four being about God and the next six being about our relationship with one another, it does indicate that Whatever we do to each other, it is in a way also possible to do it to God. And so our proper worship and relationship with God inevitably affects our relationship, our whole and complete relationship, edifying relationship into each other's lives. You know, the scripture says, Let us make men in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over all the earth. The scriptures repeat this truth. In verse 27 so God made man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them three times in a different way expressed to get across a very important and uh, fundamental truth And this comes up several times again in chapter 5 when the genealogy of Adam is listed. It begins, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And in chapter 6 of Genesis also, after the flood, God reiterates the sacred value of man that is very different from all the other living creatures. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for the image of God has God made man. So if you remember Christmas or Thanksgiving dinners with family, how mom and dad or grandparents sometimes retold the stories of how much joy you brought them when you came into their lives, you know, that's the same joy that God has with us, how beautiful and special their lives became, you know, our parents, as they're speaking, became when you were a child. God tells Adam and Eve and early humanity the same thing, how important they are to him, how we are to him. And he keeps repeating this truth so that we might live up to our sacred origins. Yet sin and Satan degrades and denigrates and desecrates the image of God and the sacred deposit of God's image in mankind. As a result, not only can we pull down and rob each other of our divine worth and unique humanity by cursing and profanely speaking down that person, cheating them, spreading scandalous lies, and inflicting harm and pain, but we can erase the image of God in ourselves by living in sin under Satan's lies. Hosea's wife demonstrated this clearly. Her adultery and fornication was and has a disintegrating effect on her person, her humanity, It cheapened her self-worth. It desecrated the sanctity of God in her life. Sin continues to defile and pollute a person's heart and soul until they have lost all sense of their humanity altogether. And, And this is so important for us today when we're thinking about our society and all the crime and violence done to every sacred person in our neighborhood, in our community, in our nation. And sin is a sobering drama. Sin is such a sobering drama, folks. As I watch the news and as I listen to all that's going on, it is heartbreaking. And the the impact of this uh, is felt everywhere in our nation right now with very many troubled hearts. But this drama is important lesson. It's a moment of instruction for us in the spiritual learning that we have before God. That sin is consequential and it's a serious matter. You know there, We're hearing of many serious news about violence and murder in our society these days, and one such is a prolific murder involving four college students in Idaho and a young Ph.D. candidate who studied criminal law who was the prime suspect. And it reads like a Dostoevsky novel, uh, Crime and Punishment, the mode of being just as heartless and cruel to see if he could get away with it, right? These are such serious misadventures in sin by those who have ridden God off from their minds and have freely entered the dark world where His light and truth are shoved aside for one's own self-will. Sin leaves a huge wake of tragic fallout. You know, I, I was watching the news where one of the victim's fathers spoke and he said something quite relevant for our study of the prophets and Hosea in particular. When asked what he has to say about this, all the crimes and the and the murder of his own daughter, he said, I want justice. I want justice. I'm not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. His day in court is not just for him. It's for everybody. You know, the story of Hosea and the justice that God wants to see, the ways in which uh, our hearts breaking brings us to repentance is not just for him. It's not just for me. It's not just for individuals. It's a collective way in which we enter into seeing what sin does and how God will execute his justice, but also provide a way of hope and redemption. God brings Israel to their day in court. There is such rampant evil and violence in the land that's supposed to be a The land's supposed to be a beacon of life and truth to the nations. They were supposed to be a nation of priests to mediate man's relationship to God. But the people had defiled themselves, so beyond recognition of holy things, their judgment in God's court is not just for them, but it's for everybody. It's for us. It's a lesson to us of our times. It transcends time, tribes, national borders, and space. We lean into each facet of wrongdoing, accusation, and piece together the evidence that God lays bare, tracing the lines of cause and effect, and witness the horrors and cruelty, the deformity and the perversity of evil, to understand that God is right in his verdict. We are there too looking on and also to evaluate the same sins because they're present with us today, individually and personally in our own lives, as we look into the same hideous strength that is at work in our lives replicating the same pain the same hurts the tragedies and the sadness so that we may fall on our knees and look to the only one who could provide a redemption and rescue from all of this is she calls us to evaluate and repent before God's throne of grace through Christ to accept his mercy and his lordship over all things so it is very apt that the last chapter of Hosea brings us back to hope. The first child named Jezreel also points to hope because Jezreel means God plants. It's not about God has taken love away. There's no love. There's no redemption. There's no hope. It ends with and begins with hope. Hosea 14.9 asks the question, Who is wise? The wise man will see the message throughout the book of Hosea. He will understand that in his mercy... God offers a wonderful opportunity for repentance and restoration. And it is dangerous and foolish to neglect that invitation. The wise man will see the ways of God, the ways of the Lord are right. Even in the midst of promised judgment, the wise and understanding person sees that the ways of the Lord are right and true. And any announcement of judgment is an invitation to see the truth and to repent. But we also read that the rebellious stumble in them. And that is just describing many who will resist what God has to say. Throughout the book, Hosea pictured the people turning away from the Lord and turning toward other gods. This propensity for idolatry meant that the Israelites lived as if they were not God's people. They were wayward people. But God will always and continue to remember them as people He once loved, that once loved God. God will restore them to their original state, the nation of Israel, that is, and not before changing and placing them in hardship and pain in order that they see the blessings that they forgot about when they were in relationship with the true God. But for us, may we all be wise people as we dive into God's relentless pursuit for us, pursuit for His backsliding people as He directs us back to Himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your unrelenting love, Your persistent and adamant love for our good, that we may, Lord, in you and only in you, Lord, we can find truly, because life is not found in any other. We can truly find life and we can find it for the, to the full. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Hosea and the ways in which Hosea depicts for us in the richness of its very di- many different uh, analogies and symbolism and metaphors, the overtures and serenade of God and God's song of love, songs of love over us. Your banner over us is love and we magnify and we praise you for your unfailing, undying love for us in Jesus our Lord in whose name we pray. Amen. I cried a tear You wiped it dry I was confused You cleared my mind I sold my soul You bought it back for me and held me